This is the Indiana Deer News Podcast, your number one resource for anything and everything that has to do with the wild deer herd in Indiana. On this episode, we're joined by Pat McGovern, one of the project coordinators for the Integrated Deer Management Project. We're going to touch on everything and anything that has to do with the Integrated Deer Management Project, and trust me, there is a ton of information. That and so much more on this episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast. This is an episode that I am extremely excited about. I had really high expectations for when I sat down and, and planned this whole uh, guest today's episode with Pat McGovern from the in- Integrated Deer Management Project um, with the Purdue University um, in coalition with the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. But it exceeded everything that I had hoped. Um, I had never really taken the time to delve into just everything that this study involves. And it is an incredible, incredible thing. And I don't want to take too much away from the interview. But before we get to the interview, there's two things. And we're going to have another episode where I'm just going to kind of go over these two things. But since it's in the news right now and social media is swirling with it, there's two things that kind of hit the deer news in Indiana, if you will, and one being the 2021-2022 county bonus antlerless quotas and what that means. So a lot of people are out there spreading false information that they've eliminated the special uh, antlerless only season later in in the latter part of the deer season. That's not necessarily true. Nothing has changed regulation-wise law. That season still exists. But one thing that you had to keep in mind is You had to have four or more being your antlerless quota number for your county in order for your county to be eligible and have that season in place. This year, we do not have a single county in the entire state. There are seven that have a three, a bunch that have two, and then I'm looking at the map right now. I believe there's another seven or eight. One, two, three, four, five, six. There's seven that have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, sorry, eight ones, there's two A's, and the rest of the state are twos. So what that means is there's no qualifying counties for that late season. It still exists. It's just not active this year in any of the counties. We'll get into that a little bit more on a later episode. Um, And then another thing that started swirling are every single year there are proposed changes um, or there's a time frame in which the DNR will propose changes to the Natural Resource Commission, um, the NRC, which we've learned a little bit about in previous episodes, and we're probably going to have to revisit it because a lot of people are freaking out. They're not reading everything. Um, but if you if you follow any kind of social media, if you go to Indiana Deer News podcast uh, Facebook page, you're going to see a sharing of these. There's two images that are circulating. I'm assuming they're notes or PowerPoint presentation from a meeting of some kind. And it talks about establishing a statewide antlerless bag limit. It talks about converting county bonus antlerless quotas to county antlerless bag limits. And it doesn't give any specifics in this. It says make archery, firearms, and muzzleloader licenses antlered only. Not seasons, but licenses. There's a difference there. And we'll unravel and un, un kind of unpack all of this in future episodes. But whenever you're seeing things like this, everybody, and you're seeing people comment, I just ask that you actually go back and read every single word in the images that are there. Don't add to it. Don't take away. 
Um, don't begin to make definitive statements that cannot be made based on the information which is presented. Um, you know, I have a feeling in upcoming episodes, not only on this podcast, but then hopefully just uh, informational releases that the DFW does or Mariah does, the deer biologist, we begin to understand or um, at least be given reasons for each of these bullet points. I'm not saying that we might like them. I'm not saying I might like them or accept them, but I want to understand them more, and hopefully we can get to understanding that more and more. And if dialogue needs to happen, and if we as hunters need to rise up and say, absolutely not, that's not what we want, we've learned on this podcast what the proper procedures are to let our voices be heard to the NRC and those public input meetings. And we need to actually do it, not just punch keyboards in a keypad on the internet and hit enter, but we won't take the time to answer surveys. We won't take the time to write a letter to the NRC. We won't do what we actually need to do in order to make a difference, in order to let our voices be heard. So don't freak out about all those things. I don't want to get in too deep into the weeds into this episode because then it would steal from the amazing content which you're about to listen to. So I had the pleasure of sitting down with Pat McGovern, the project coordinator, or one of the project coordinators. Um, I think he is the only project coordinator. There I go stepping on my own. Um, words there. But yes, there's a field coordinator and there's a project coordinator. The field coordinator is actually Scott Allaire. Um, and maybe we can have Scott on some sometime as well. But Pat was just a wealth of knowledge. He goes into all the goals, the timelines, the study areas, what each um, goal, if you will, and how he go they go about that as a team, kind of what are their survey techniques? What are some of the things that they're doing? And I think many hunters and landowners are going to be a little surprised exactly to the depth of which this study is going. Um, it started back in 2018. So here we're at the end of year three, essentially, um, with this whole entire thing. And they're just now beginning to analyze and and go into their time period where they begin to make um, observations on what they've captured over all these years. So without further ado, I'm going to stop rambling and I'm going to turn this thing over to the conversation, which I had with Pat McGovern the other night with the integrated, integrated deer management project. Here we go. All right. Welcome to this episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast. This is one I've been looking forward to. Actually reached out to the folks over at Integrated Deer Management Project at uh, Purdue University quite a while ago. Time and schedules just didn't allow. And then recently, um, Pat was willing to set down, as you'll hear a lot of Pat today on this episode, he's going to break down this entire study, probably go over some of the past when it was uh, started and everything. But Pat, thank you so much for sitting down and talking uh, this whole project with us today. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Pat, if you will, this is Pat McGovern. Sorry, I forgot to include the last name there. But Pat, if you want to just take just a quick minute and introduce yourself, kind of how you started into this whole thing, what led you to where you are now, and then let's delve into exactly what the Integrated Deer Management Project is and what are the goals that it's trying to accomplish. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm the project coordinator for the Integrated Deer Management Project. And so um, what that means is I basically oversee and, and involved with pretty much every aspect of the project. Um, as I'll get you in a bit, it's a big project. We've got eight faculty members, four or five graduate students doing a bunch of different things. Um, so my job is coordination, um, dealing with all of our private landowners who uh, allow us to conduct research on their property, following up with them to, to share things that we've seen, um, and then 
dealing with a lot of our um, seasonal technicians. You know, we do a lot of field work, so we've got a lot of um, techs that come out and help us during the field seasons uh, and coordinating all that because this is a statewide deer study. Um, so we work all over the place. Uh, we're based out of West Lafayette at Purdue University. That's where I work. Um, but, you know, we work as far south um, as Corridon, like down towards Kentucky border, and we're up in the northeast part of the state as well. Uh, as far as how I got involved in the project, I've been um, on the project for three years now. I uh, started July of 2018, um, really at the start of the project, um, and came to it by way of, of Iowa State University, uh, where I had finished my master's looking at uh, fawn survival and cost-specific mortality and space use um, of fawns in an agricultural region, so central Iowa. Um, and that kind of led me directly into this position here. Um, working with deer. Um, previously, I've done research on a number of species, um, ocelots, mountain lions, elephants, um, and birds, going back to my undergrad career. But uh, for the past six years now, it's been, it's been pretty much deer full-time. Excellent. Excellent. I love it. Um, yeah, a lot of your bio, and I was speaking to you before that we started pushing record and we might even have Pat or invite him back on when he has a spare minute and his time to talk about that, uh, mortality study that you did on the fawns. It sounded incredibly interesting when I was reading just a brief, uh, synopsis of it, but this integrated deer management project you joined in 2018, was that when it started or when did it actually kind of start, uh, I guess start? Yeah, so it, it pretty much officially started in July of 2018. That's when uh, the grant and the funding and everything started. Um, the project had been in development. Um, faculty at, at Purdue in conjunction with um, the deer biologist um, at the time, Joe Caudell at, at Indiana DNR, uh, had been discussing it for uh, at least a year prior, I think. Um, the way the, the grant funding cycle works is proposals are due in October for the following fiscal year. So uh, it had been planned and, and approved in, I think, the fall or winter of 2017, and then um, started laying the groundwork logistically in July of 2018. The graduate students, uh, there are three PhD students that are on the project. They came in uh, that fall semester, so August, and then we started field work in January of 2019. So who all is involved, you know, you guys are working hand in hand. I know there's a lot of graduate students and yourself and field coordinator Scott and some others. Is the state and the, and the DNR itself also providing services? Are they assisting you guys in this whole thing? Um, in a sense. So it's a, it's a state funded project. So the, mm -hmm. the grant that pays our salary and all of our equipment, everything um, is a state grant um, under the wildlife restoration grant program, um, which I believe is uh, passed through federal funds, Bennett Robertson um, mm -hmm. funds. Um, they don't provide direct, well, I don't want to say that. Uh, it's a Purdue project funded by the state. All the work is done by Purdue researchers and employees. Um, okay. We obviously work a lot on state lands. Um, and we get plenty of um, collaboration from, you know, Division of Forestry, Division of Parks, um, all those people that allow us to come out and do, do work on public lands. Um, and then, of course, our reports, um, you know, annual reports and things go back to the DNR. 
Um, and our, our real hope and plan is for the, the results that we find to go to DNR and have them implement them or incorporate them into their decision making. Sure. When, when this whole integrated deer study was started, what were some of the main goals that were mapped out for it to try to accomplish? So there's three main kind of legs to the project, um, three main goals that they fall under um, these kind of subject areas and roughly our graduate students and workforce are kind of split between the three. Um, so the first one is uh, estimating population density um, of deer across the state, um, trying to get a good scientifically grounded um, number, an estimate of deer, um, you know, beyond just what we get from, you know, harvest reports or, you know, previous spotlighting reports and things like that. Um, we've since expanded that. So that's kind of the population side of things. Um, there's also a part of it that is evaluating the most cost-effective way to continually estimate deer populations. So um, I'll get into this when we talk about methods, but we're, we're looking at estimating the deer population in an area through different ways and comparing how much time it takes to do each of those things, how accurate each one of them is, to try and make a recommendation for, all right, if you've got, if you want to do deer surveys every year, you've got limited time or limited funds, this is probably your best bet. It's going to get you good results, reliable results without, you know, breaking the bank. Um, because some of the methods we have are very simple in terms of the actual field work. Some are pretty complicated. So it runs the gamut. Um, so that, that original goal was focused on deer. We've since added um, kind of a side project where we're estimating population of some common white-tailed deer predators. So focusing primarily on coyotes and bobcats, um, but we're also hoping to pick up uh, fox, particularly gray fox in the southern part of the state, um, looking at trying to map occurrence of those predators uh, and then densities, especially of coyotes where we have enough that we can probably estimate how many there are in, in an area. Uh, and that'll feed back into the population model for deer um, by looking at if you have a, a rough estimate of how many coyotes there are in an area, you can use published reports on, on predation rates and things like that to kind of get a sense of what impact they could be having on recruitment, um, on how many fawns make it to adulthood. Um, and then our second study group, um, study area is focused on habitat. So habitat condition and vegetation communities across the state, looking at things like browsing intensity, um, you know, how much and what the deer are eating, what kind of condition the habitat is. Primarily, we're talking about woodlots here, so forest areas. Um, uh, you know, how, how are oaks looking, maples, ash, all kinds of things, um, trying to see if that varies across the state. Uh, and again, similarly to the population side of things, we're evaluating a couple of different methods to get the same results, to get the same data. Uh, again, to try to implement or recommend um, some good ways that even, you know, landowners and, and um, land managers can use to monitor the impacts deer could be having on, on the habitat. Uh, and then our third one is, is the human dimensions side of the project. So um, our graduate student and, and her advisor are really focusing on people's understanding and perceptions of deer and deer management in the state. So trying to assess you know, how people feel about deer, um, what their experiences are, you know, whether they're hunters or farmers, if they have positive or negative experiences, um, just about deer in general, and then also about 
the state, um, DNR, how they've managed deer, what their plans are for managing deer, what their options are for managing deer, all of that um, sort of stuff. And really our, our ultimate goal of this project is to take those three things, which are separate questions really, but they're all related to deer in Indiana and then bring them together into this integrated model uh, where our whole project name comes from uh, to really get a sense of where all those things intersect. So if we know there's this many deer in this area, the habitat is at you know, this kind of condition, is that okay or not? Do you want to increase or lower um, the amount of deer? And then also, how do people feel about the number of deer in this area? You know, because you've got two different. Um, are you familiar with carrying capacity? Yes, and we have talked about carrying capacity with both Mariah and Joe on past episodes. So the listeners should be somewhat familiar. But if you want to give a brief little flyby definition of it, that'd be great. Sure. And this Joe has probably talked about this. I'm sure because it's probably his favorite figure. Um, but so carrying capacity is the the idea of um, how much um, of something a system can hold. So how many deer habitat can support um, before there are detrimental or negative effects to the, to the habitat or the deer themselves. Um, and that's generally ecological carrying capacity, but then you've also got this idea of social or sociological carrying capacity, um, which, you know, as both hunters and farmers are gonna be very aware of, you know, an area may support a certain number of deer, but there are knock-on effects of having that many deer, whether it's crop uh, damage, things like that, where people may, or even um, uh, automotive, you know, car collision uh, risk. Um, so people might not want as many deer as the habitat can support. And then on the flip side of it, you know, as you get a lower number of deer, the habitat might be doing great, but there's not ample opportunities for hunting. So you want more deer in that area. And so really what we're trying to do is, is find, or really, I guess, provide a model that can help the DNR or help managers make decisions to balance those two ideas of carrying capacity. You know, so you want a healthy deer herd, healthy habitat, but you also want to satisfy the stakeholders' desires. So a healthy huntable population, but, you know, not um, insurmountable agricultural loss or, you know, risk um, driving down the highway. Excellent. It's almost like you guys are trying to provide a or substantiate decisions in that balancing act, but in a non-subjective way, you know, try to eliminate um, personal opinions and emotions. However, that's a factor that you're measuring. It's also a bunch of other things to help and assist the management of the entire state, it sounds like. Yeah. So so I think um, one of the driving um, factors behind this whole project getting started was the desire um, from multiple people involved in deer management and, and deer research yep. for the development of a very data-driven, you know, rigorous um, model or, or predictive capacity to inform management. So you're not working so much on gut feeling or, or you know, yeah, less quantifiable things, trying to have a just a, a good, reliable, hard numbers to back up decisions that are being made. Which, to be fair, helps provide trust between those 
I guess, making the management decisions and us, the users or the observers, if you don't hunt, um, in the state of Indiana. I like it. The, you know, this sounds like a very, very expansive project. Um, you know, you said you started it in 2018. Here we are, you know, in 2021, July of 2021, the end of it. How, what's the timeline look like for this? Is there an end goal or is it more so we're going to go until we have all the data we feel we then can, you know, provide a final report? Uh, so it's a little bit of both. Um, the, the initial project, what, what we, um, kind of envisioned as, as kind of the first phase or the first steps in this project were, um, a four year study. So three years of field work and then a year of, of analysis and, and writing. Um, and so we are right at the tail end of that last year of field work. Um, about 95% of our field work is done. Um, we've got a little bit of stuff that the vegetation uh, crew is going to go out and do in the next few weeks. Um, and then the human dimension side of things, we have some surveys coming back still. Um, but so right now we're, we're winding down field work and focusing on churning through the, the sheer volume of data that we've collected over these past few years uh, and turning it into models and reports um, and and things, tools that we can provide to agencies or, or landowners as well um, to help inform their decision-making um, going forward. But it's not the end of the project. Um, we have plans for um, continual research um, going forward. It won't be the same stuff that we've been doing for these past three years. It'll be, I mean, one of the things about science is you set out to answer one question. <laughs> And when you do it, you find three more questions that you want to follow. So we've got some, some kind of spinoff stuff or some follow-on projects that we're planning um, that will start probably not for a couple of years, maybe maybe next year. Um, we're still working on some some ideas, um, but you know the PhD students have to sit down and and chug through this data and write their dissertations, and that takes a year or two, um, depending on the complexity of stuff, and then. That's just them getting their individual stuff together. Then all three of them have to sit down and stitch their different work together and figure out where those balancing points are and those intersection points. Um, and then once they've done that, there's going to be some follow-up studies that we'd like to do in the future uh, in different parts of the state, seeing if the model that we built holds up because um, we didn't survey the entire state. So conditions differ based on where you are and conditions differ through time. So you know, the way things are now and have been for the past three years can be and, and certainly will be different in the future, you know, particularly if CWD um, comes in and we've got, you know, management actions there or other sorts of uh, disease outbreaks or anything that you can't really predict at this point. Um, so it'll be kind of a refinement uh, over the years, I think, is our is our plan. Now, you mentioned it there, and I'm going to... In- this isn't necessarily on the outline, but I find it interesting because when you started in 2018 and now three years later, we did have an EHD breakout in Southern Indiana. Did any of that, uh, I guess you could say the hot zones for that where they were getting reports, was that any part of the study areas? I don't believe so. I'd have to look. So our study, we do our population surveys in the winter, so January okay. through March. Um, so they just don't overlap with when you have EHD outbreaks. So we didn't yep. pick it up. Um, 
and I'd have to go back and look. I guess if we had, I don't recall there being a drop in our in our density estimates mm -hmm. in the southern part of the state, but um, you know we're also looking at stuff over multiple counties. Yep. Um, so it could be that it just kind of got lost in the noise. And while EHD is prevalent on the landscape every year, it's you know when it really hits hard is such a, I don't know, it's it varies. I mean, there's no way to consistently. Uh, predict it so it's not really a variable that you guys could probably measure and say this is what you need to do with that anyways right yeah it's i mean it's it's kind of a it's a natural disruptor really like it's going to yeah. happen and then you know i think i think the only instance where you'd kind of plan for it or potentially forecast it is if you're in severe drought conditions or you're predicted to continue with drought for multiple years because that'll exacerbate it yep um but no i mean to go kind of sideways into my master's work that's we had a we had an ehd outbreak in one year of my three-year study and it decimated one of my study populations and then the other one was completely fine wow. and then you know we were really hoping to get some cool compare and contrast stuff there um it just yeah it was it was an interesting uh event to see happen well, I won't take us down that rabbit hole too far because I probably won't come <laughs> back. Um, let's move on. You know, we kind of touched on it there. What are some of the study areas that this has been, I guess, uh, centered around? Yeah, so so the first thing that the project did, and this, this really even happened a little bit before I came on, was um, identifying study areas, like where we wanted to do work in the state. So deer management in the state was historically done on a county-by-county county basis. Um, that's a lot of counties. We don't have that many people. We wanted a more manageable unit to to try to look at and and do analysis on, you know, and plus deer don't respect county boundaries. They'll walk across it fine. Um, so the first thing that the project did was set out to develop these regional management units. Um, and so um, Rob Swihart, my boss, and the, the PI on the project, and some other faculty, uh, as well as Joe Caudell sat down and they looked at a bunch of different factors that are related to or potentially related to deer densities. So harvest, um, CRP land, percent of developed land. Um, I think they took into road, they took into account roadkill or road density, um, a whole lot of factors, put it into this model and it spit out a bunch of different um, multi-county areas that are clumped together based on these predictive factors. Um, and they sent those to some, some subject matter experts, you know, deer managers in the state and said, you know, how do these line up with what you're familiar with? Um, and we ended up with 10 regional management units. Um, and if you're familiar with the deer management units that the DNR implemented a few years ago, they're effectively the same as the regional management units that we Put together. Uh, the only difference is ours, some of them, the counties aren't directly next to each other. You've got some interesting gaps um, for, for whatever reason. Um, and then for management perspective, that's difficult. So they just kind of close those gaps. Um, that's really the only difference between our study areas and theirs or their management areas. Uh, and then we chose three of those to do our work in. Um, we chose the one based around Purdue. Um, so kind of northwest central Indiana, you know, heavy agricultural area, um, 
private land, isolated woodlots, that sort of stuff. Uh, we've got one in southern Indiana, um, so it goes from north of Bloomington, like just south of Indy, all the way um, down to the Kentucky border, uh, and it goes east to west. It goes all the way as far east as Big Oaks National Wildlife Refuge. You've got Harrison Crawford State Forest, Hoosier National Forest, um, Yellowwood, and Morgan Rose State Forest. There's a whole bunch of public land in there. And then our third study area is uh, the northeastern part of the state. Um, and so that's one of those ones that it's not completely contiguous. Um, we've got uh, Tacal, LaGrange, Noble, Steuben counties, and then also St. Joseph County. Um, so there's that one gap there. I can never remember which county that is in between. Uh, um, Elkhart's in between there. And it and the St. Joseph portion that is part of that is excluding the uh, reduction zone area around South Bend. Correct. Yeah. So so what we did is we originally had these nine regional management units. Um, and then what we did was we overlaid the DNR's deer reduction zones on top of that mm -hmm. and turned that into a 10th one because while those areas are similar to, you know, the counties they're in, the management there is very different because yep. they're urban areas and things like that. So, so yeah, we exclude uh, South Bend. Yep. Similarly, we exclude the West Lafayette, Lafayette area here in, um, in RMU3. And you can, uh, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, for those listening, if you want to see these maps, they are actually on, I'll, in the show notes, I'll provide it. It's uh, at the purdue.edu uh, research in, in deer page, but they have the 10 uh, regional or uh, management units on the left-hand side. And then the right map illustrates the three that uh, Pat just went through that they are studying, which are numbered three, four, and nine, and they're all color-coded there for you. Yeah. And then, I mean, so those study areas, that's, that's the kind of regions that we're working in. We're not surveying every single part of those entire regions that are huge. Um, so what we do is we do our work on these things called test landscapes. Um, and so those are two mile by two mile uh, squares that we kind of randomly select uh, in each RMU. And so we survey 20 of them each year. Um, generally it's split or it's always split seven, seven, and six. So one RMU has slightly less every year. Um, and so that's where we do our actual field work. That's where we go and contact with the landowners and, and go and collect our, our data. Um, and those vary from year to year, but we keep a subset of them constant. So there's six pest landscapes that we survey every year. And then we have 14 new ones each year um, spread across the three RMUs. So that's where our actual data comes from but it gets kind of scaled up to the to the RMU level. Excellent. Well, let's, you know, let's delve into and kind of unpack the data if you will or or what has been conducted so far in each of those three and then the predator study as well that kind of links back to the population survey you said um, let's just start unpacking each of those cuz I'm sure the listeners are probably curious, you know, what do each of these entail? How are you going about gathering all this data? Because uh, it's quite the intense project that's occurring. And for those listening, you can actually go to that same page link is actually going to give estimations of, you know, how many cameras have been deployed, how many woodlots have been sampled. It's it's very interesting, um, the amount of people and things that this is all inclusive of. But I'm sure Pat's going to unpack that for us right now. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, that website should be updated soon. I'm, I'm just wrapping up our annual report from the last year. Uh, and so I got to add, add all those numbers and they should go up by about a third because 
adding a, another year of, of work to it. Um, but so, yeah, on the, on the population side of things, um, like I said before, we're evaluating multiple methods of estimating populations. And so uh, with the deer, our three methods that we do it are uh, camera trapping. So just setting out um, remote cameras across the state, across our test landscapes. Um, we set out about 400 each year. They go out in early January and we pick them up in, in late March or early April. Um, those, we, we put them both in forested areas and in, in agricultural fields, just to get a good sample of, of everywhere that you're gonna spend their time. Um, and then we go through and, and sort all those photos uh, to identify the species that are in them and then um, estimate deer density off of that. Um, and so, yeah, we've put out over the three years, it's it's now over a thousand cameras and we've gotten over three, over 3 million photos. Um, so we pick up the cameras in April and we're still going through IDing photos right now. Uh, it takes it takes quite a bit of time and effort, um, but we've got a good team of, of undergraduate and seasonal workers that'll come help us uh, sort photos. And then in conjunction with that, we also do um, fecal pellet transects, fecal pellet surveys. So basically uh, we'll go out and we'll walk uh, a 200 yard line, um, either in fields or in woodlots uh, and count every group of deer pellets that we can see from that line uh, and how far off the line they are. Um, and that can be used to estimate deer densities, um, given that you know how much time a deer spends in a particular habitat and what their defecation rate is. And that's all stuff that's published in the literature um, that we pull from. Uh, and then our third deer population method or estimation method is aerial surveys. And we're doing a, a paired infrared and color camera um, platforms. So we basically built this platform that has an IR camera and then just a regular DSLR camera, uh, and it mounts to the bottom of the plane, um, pointing below the plane, uh, and they're both taking video. And we fly, uh, in this instance, we actually fly a four mile by four mile grid, uh, rather than the two mile by two mile that we do our field work on. Um, and basically record every deer that we, that we see in that, on those flights. Um, and we use the, the color camera. These flights again are also done in, in February. Um, so no leaf cover, um, minimal ground cover. And if you've got snow, that's great because it helps really um, the deer or other animals pop out on the IR camera. I'm assuming, so we've done those once each year of the study so far? Uh, yes. So this past year was the first year this this past spring was the first time we did a full set of surveys. Okay. Um, the first year in 2019, we were building the platform. We had a bunch of delays in getting equipment and sending it back and forth mm -hmm. to, to the people that were putting it together for us. Um, so we did a small set of flights. Those were done in April. And so it was warm. It was very hard to see yeah. uh, the deer on the IR. And then last year uh, we were getting started getting going and then uh COVID hit and you can't social distance in a two-person <laughs> plane so that that cut that short yeah uh but this past year we got we got the full set done and and Excellent. uh zach our, the phd student on the population side of things has been going through it and you know he says it's 
it's it's great data. Um, everything looks good. And he's planning actually to go out and do some extra surveys to try to figure out how fast you can go and still get clear video so that you can then survey more in a, in the same amount of time. Which is excellent for those listening because that means more data to be given. And the more data you have, the more reliable your results are. Yeah. And the nice thing about the aerial surveys is you're serving a bunch of area in a snapshot in time, right? So you know a deer you see here is not going to show up somewhere else because it doesn't have time to get there. Whereas, you know, our, our camera traps, they're out for months. So you've got some movement. Um, and again, they're, they're surveying a much smaller area. Um, so kind of going from the most, the simplest to the most complex in these methods, we've got the pellet transects, camera traps, and then the aerial surveys. And that's where this cost effectiveness comes into play is, you know, what's most accurate, what's easiest, that sort of stuff. Um, and then on the predator side of things, kind of also falling under this population survey, uh, we've been doing non-invasive genetic sampling. And so we've done stat surveys and we've set out hair snares. Uh, and so this work also takes place in those three regional management units, but not necessarily on the test landscapes, just because predators typically range over a larger area. You need to survey more area to find them. There's lower densities, things like that. Um, and so we went out We've done it for two seasons now, uh, last summer and then this past winter. Uh, we have about 150 miles of, of survey route that our technicians will drive uh, every other week and um, record and collect all the predator scat that they find or likely predator scat um, and then bring it back to a lab where we do genetic analysis to identify or to confirm what species it comes from. Uh, in the case of coyotes, we're looking at some individual markers to identify which individual coyote it came from, uh, potentially look at things like parasite load and, and disease. Uh, and if we can determine if the scat contains deer. So if, if they've been consuming deer at some point, it doesn't mean that they've killed a deer, they could be scavenging, but getting a sense of how much of a coyote's winter diet uh, or summer diet is um, is is containing deer and then we've also done um hair snares similar concept we put out these um rub pads that entice cats or or canids to rub against it some hair comes off uh, gets caught in the the little tacks or carpet pads uh, we collect those hairs run through genetic analysis to again identify what it came from and and who um and so our habitat work is similar um, to the, the deer population stuff in terms of um, the first method we use is this twig age method. So we go out and do winter browse surveys. So um, go into the woodlots and we're surveying mostly uh, ash and maple um, just because they're really common and you can identify them pretty easily in winter. Uh, looking at saplings, things that are within the browsing range of a, of a deer. Uh, and trying to count or assess how frequently, how long it's been since each stem was last browsed, you know, in terms of years. That gives you a sense of how old the twig is uh, and how much, how browse intensity is during winter in these woodlots. 
We also do summer browse surveys, so the more traditional vegetation surveys that um, you see in a lot of research, um, looking at all the all the woody and, and herbaceous species found in um, in our study areas. And our student there, RD, he's put together a pretty comprehensive browse preference ranking um, based on the regions of the state. You know, in some parts of the state, deer love hackberry, and some parts they don't because they got other stuff they like more. Um, so trying to trying to track you know, what species are preferred and what species are actively avoided by deer when it comes to browsing, uh, which could be potentially useful for, for managers who either want to promote deer habitat or um, plant some deer resistant things. Now, just putting my mind in the self of some people that might be listening, all these things, what is this going to teach us or what are some questions or things that, you know, knowing the time span between a twig being browsed on, what does that tell us? Uh, so really it just tells you the intensity of, of the deer browse. So how much impact deer are having on those species in that woodlot. Um, and it's a quick and easy method to keep track of um, habitat condition. Um, you know, so the vegetation surveys, the summer vegetation surveys, you've got to know a whole number of species of, of plants and how to identify them. Uh, these twig age ones are nice because you can just go out in, in March um, and identify ash or maple, count some, some twigs back, and you get, you get a sense of um, what, what the browse level is like, which again is just really to help you inform management decisions after that. You know, if you go out and count and say, okay, we're at this level. It's getting over browsed. We need to do something about the, the deer population or um, subsequently, you know, oh, there's not much out here or they're preferring these things. I want to plant more of that or, or less of that. Um, Your habitat, in other words, is a great indicator of what the overall deer numbers or the deer health is. Yeah. And it's a lot easier to survey your habitat than it is to survey the deer because habitat doesn't move. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, and it's a great, I mean, that's the kind of the foundation for the deer population, right? You know, if, if you want to attract deer, provide them habitat. Um, if you want to manage them in a non-direct or an indirect fashion, you manage the habitat. Um, and, you know, we also got things on a, on a, um, a less deer-centric focus in the habitat. So looking at oak regeneration, um, you know, oak, is a, is a species of a lot of interest to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to get to oak regeneration, especially in the Midwest. Um, so you just don't have these new trees coming up to replace the old trees that have that have died or fallen. Um, and one of the potential factors in that is heavy deer browsing. Um, and so we've gone out and we've built deer exclosures. And so they're just um, these small uh, mesh fence, um, boxes basically that we've built in our woodlots and we plant oak seedlings, red oak seedlings inside those and outside of those, mm -hmm. and then measure um, the growth rate and survival of those seedlings um, where they're exposed to deer and where they're not exposed to deer to try and track um, or get a sense of, you know, are deer the reason that oak seedlings aren't surviving or is it something else? 
No, oaks in my area are one of my, if it's a oak tree that's not growing great or it's not in a good spot, you hinge those puppies over and the deer are just annihilating them. Yeah, and we've also, we've started to look at some work on um, stump sprouts. So okay. if, you, if you cut down a tree and, and you encourage re-sprouting, um, there's been some, some questions about if deer prefer those and that actually, you know, makes it worse for regeneration because the deer come in and go, oh, these are nice and new and fresh. Um, so, so RD and, and um, Jared Brooke, our extension specialist, they've been starting a side project to, to look at that similar concept to the oak disclosures where they've created stump sprouts, caged some of them up and some left open, and they've set cameras on them to see um, what's coming to eat them and, and how much they're getting browsed. And they're also taking samples of the leaves and the, and the sprouts for a nutrient analysis yeah. to figure out are stump sprouts actually more nutritious than, you know, your traditional seedlings. Yep. And that's the work that they, they kind of just started last summer and they're continuing this summer. So it's interesting to see what kind of results they get out of it. Yeah. I know there's been quite a few universities that have been doing similar studies. You know, you hear Mississippi state deer lab did something similar. It'll be very interesting to see if, uh, the results that you guys find uh, mirror or change, or is there a slight difference that you guys have been able to measure? Yeah. And I think one of the nice things about the way our study is set up and, and the state in general is, you know, our three regions are different enough that we can see differences in habitat community, you know, deer preferences yeah. and things like that. And so we can try to tease apart you know, how much of this is local conditions versus you know, then when we go compare it to Mississippi, for example, and say, all right, you know, they're within the realm of error. Very interesting. Uh, and then, yeah, so that is, that's our field work that's been going on for the last few years. And then the human dimensions um, work that Taylor's been doing is in a different realm, obviously. Um, we're not going out and putting up cameras on people. So <laughs> she's been they relying on, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, although we get, you know, landowners when they find our cameras out, um, oh, for sure in their fields that some of them, we, we have typically like grandkids like to, you know, make faces in front of them and stuff. So oh, yeah. it's always fun going through. Um, but so Taylor's been working on, um, she started off with some, some interviews and focus groups with, uh, various stakeholders across the state, people that have an interest in deer management and, and even people that don't. So talking to hunters, farmers, wildlife managers, um, urban, suburban, rural residents, trying to really um, get everybody's opinion on or experiences with deer and deer management. And the hard thing to do is getting the opinion of people who say they don't have an opinion about deer. Right. Right. So if you, if you put out a call for, you know, Hey, we want to survey you about deer people that love deer and people that hate deer are going to come talk to you, but people that don't care, mm -hmm. how do you survey them? Um, and so she used these survey, these focus groups to kind of build a questionnaire um, that she then sent out as a mailing survey to 6,000 residents across the state. And this was sent out a couple months ago um, to try and get a broader um you know, net responses about deer and deer management. Um, and so she's divided it up um, 
by group kind of. So obviously for deer, the opinion of deer hunters is incredibly important. You know, they pay into the system of, of wildlife management um, and farmers, you know, they're economically impacted by deer, but deer and all wildlife are managed by the state for the entire public of the state, not just those people that hunt or, or interact with them. And so she's just trying to get opinions from, from everybody. And she divided it up roughly, I think half the surveys went to people that have uh, purchased a license from the DNR in the past or participated in DNR workshops, so people that have paid into the system. Uh, and then the other half is, I think, just a random draw of people divided by, um, I don't recall exactly, but there's some urban versus rural and, and other divides in there. Now you um, you may not know this answer, but did she is that divided amongst the three study areas, or is she doing it statewide? It is statewide, but there was some targeted nailing that went to okay. landowners in our study area, so that we have some kind of like location specific yeah. results saying this is how they feel about it, and we know how many deer are there. Um, but then again, also surveying. Um, other places. Let me, I'm pretty sure it was all of the state, not just within our RMUs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, across the state of Indiana, half are from Fish and Wildlife customers. Yep. Yeah, drawn at random from publicly available tax data. Excellent. So. Um, yeah, and so sure, those responses are still coming in. Um, she and, and some of her uh, technicians have been spending days just opening opening letters and, and scanning in survey results. So um, pretty soon she'll sit down and, and start to, to pick through those results. Um, Does she feel even, the I results mean, have been, appears to be decent? Have you guys gotten responses that she's pretty satisfied with as far as the um, number? I don't, I think it's been so... I don't know what, how it's gone in the last month, but sure. in the last, um, at the end of June, they had received about 700 responses um, out of the 6,000. And so generally with the survey responses, you know, you're looking for something around 20% is a pretty good response rate. Um, so I think, I think she's on track to get um, a good, a good chunk of responses for sure. I was going to say the that, question will be that's a higher percentage than we've gotten on deer surveys of hunters from Mariah and Joe. That's excellent. Yeah, they. I mean, um, they, I think they designed it from the ground up to be, you know, as enticing as possible. Um, good. And so, you know, her her advisor, um, Dr. Ma, is a human dimensions social science researcher, so they've they've done these sort of surveys before and kind of follow whatever the best practices are for for getting people to, to respond. And that I think covers pretty much everything that we've done in terms of the, the specific survey methods and everything that we've used over the past three years. Um, it's quite a lot, um, I know it's a, it's a big project, um, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, we're winding down now and really looking forward to seeing some results and sharing some results for sure. 
And that's kind of where I was heading with my next questions, because I'm sure anybody who's like me who's been listening to all this, is there going to be a format or portions of the results? Are, are, are these going to be made public at some point? Is the DNR going to be given them, and then they'll probably release some of it? Do you know how that's all going to play out to some point? So it's going to be a, a, a kind of a combination of, of all of that. So um, for each of the past two years, and, and again, going forward, uh, we've provided annual reports to the DNR, but in addition, we provide updates to the deer biologists, so Joe and then Mariah, mm-hmm. uh, for the white-tailed deer report. And so um, that report that they put out every year, summarizing the harvest and everything like that, there's a section about um, research on deer in the state. And we present typically summaries of the work that we've conducted to that point and some preliminary results in those reports. And so those are publicly available. I don't believe last year's report has come out yet. Not quite yet. Um, Mariah said we're just a few weeks away, I think, the last time I heard. Okay. So, yeah. So that's that's kind of the primary way that our results have been shared so far, at least with um, the greater public. There's also... um, the wildlife restoration grant report, which goes out, um, again, it's a DNR kind of summary of projects that they've funded with wildlife restoration um, money, uh, similar sort of results there. We share mostly qualitative or summary stuff on our website, um, okay. just kind of like what we've done so far. Um, we're going to publish all of the results that we that we have. Um, you know, those will go into peer-reviewed scientific journals. So typically they are behind a paywall, which isn't great, but um, we list all of our publications on our website. And if you contact the author of the publication, they can share the PDF um, with you. Mm-hmm. So that's on the more technical side of things. I know most people don't want to sit down and read a 20 page scientific paper. So um, really it's going to be the, the DNR report, the DEER report. Um, and then once we get I don't want to say confirmed results, but, but, you know, results that we've, we've gone through the analysis, we've double checked and made sure that what we're saying is what the data say. Yeah. Um, those sort of results and summaries we plan to share on the website, um, on our Twitter, which is at research in deer. Um, and then, you know, we'll be putting out reports to our individual landowners this fall is our plan. Um, Cause we've had at this point, I think it's close to, close to 800 landowners that have participated in the study over the past three years. Um, and so getting them results, we've shared photos from cameras that are on their properties. Um, but, but now that we're into the data analysis phase, uh, one of my big goals is to um, follow up with all of them and say, Hey, here's what, here's what we found. Here's what your habitat kind of looks like. Um, you know, depending on the property, we can't really say here's how many deer are on your property, but we can say, in your area, within a couple square miles, here's about what your what your your density looks like. And com- um, coming in from a landowner myself, if I had partaken in this, that's that's priceless information for me to make land management decisions of my own. Yeah, and really, our goal is to try to provide results on a couple different scales, especially for these landowners. You just say, all right, here's what we saw on your property. Here's what things look like in the couple square miles around your property, here's what things look like at the regional scale. So you can kind of see where your area falls into general trends and things like that. Um, Because again, some of these areas, you know, 
down south in particular, you know, some some of our test landscapes are still in agricultural regions, but a lot of the study area is public land. So if we just provided landowners with the regional results, that may not reflect what they see on the ground specifically, but context is always important. Yes, excellent. So the outlook moving forward is everybody listening, make sure you check out when that deer summary comes up. We will That will have brief summaries from everything dating that was probably up until do you know what kind of data point that pulled from probably last year's summaries? Uh, yeah, it, it would have been, I believe we sent those summaries in the spring of this year. And so they may include a bit of our, um, it'll be results from last year. And there may be a bit of um, the start of fieldwork from this year. Like, oh, we yeah. set this many cameras. There's not going to be any results from this year. Um, yeah. Well, I look forward to it. And when I would love somebody to come back on and kind of help us on, because as you said, you know, that PDF document is something that I would read, but I enjoy reading those studies and such, but it'd be nice to have somebody sit down and maybe unpack what we're actually reading and digest it a little bit more. So if somebody would be willing, I would love to have somebody back on or yourself. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, um, yeah, once we have some of these results, really, I mean, the, the key to all of this is, you know, you know, we can do all this work, but if we don't tell people about it in a way that makes sense to them, then why did we really do it? Um, so I think once, once, once our grad students have, you know, gotten some stuff where we can, and it and not even doesn't even have to be the entire project. You know, it's not that everything has to be done before we can start telling people about things, you know, just little bits and pieces as they, as they come up, we'll share them and, and yeah, happy to come share them with you and your audience as well. So you're looking at, this is the final year of the field study and then, or have you guys already started that year of uh, analysis of everything? Um, I'm trying oh, to so, so yeah, it kind of varies. Typically, most of our field work is done by May of each year. Okay. Um, all the population stuff is done um, and about half of the habitat stuff is done. And then the habitat work continues through the summer into August. Um, so, so our population PhD student, Zach, he's been analyzing data for the last few months. Um, I know he's got a, I think he's got two papers that are in review right now, looking at some of the pellet data, um, kind of more methods papers, not, not, um, densities yet. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but he's working on that. Like I said, we're still working on sorting all the camera images. Um, but the pellet data and the aerial survey data, I think are, are mostly, um, cataloged at this point, and, and he's just working on on density estimation models and things like that. Um, the habitat work, yeah, they're still in the field. Um, they're going out next week to go measure those oak seedlings that we planted this spring. Uh, and then now that we are done with field work for this stage of the project, they're tearing down the deer exclosures that we built over the last three years. Um, so we can get kind of a sense of you know, if you plant an oak seedling in 2018 in exclosure, how does it look three years later versus one that was only in exposure for two years and one that was there for one year? Um, get a sense of, of through time how survival looks. Um, so he'll be finishing collecting that data next month, and then he'll be into, into analysis and, and writing. And like I said, Taylor, she's still getting those survey results back. So she'll be um, entering and coding that stuff for a while, I think, before she gets a chance to, to analyze. But 
yeah, um, from from about August on into next summer, I think it's just going to be analysis and and sharing sub projects and, and subsections of the results as we have them. So 2022 is kind of the year where things will start to visualize results for you guys. It has to be exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think everybody's excited to see, you know, because I've seen, and especially, you know, myself as a project coordinator, I'm in frequent contact with the PhD students and bits and pieces of their project, but really the analysis and a lot of their findings are between them and their advisor while they're just working through stuff. So I'm looking forward to seeing the big picture. You know, I've seen bits and pieces of some of Zach's stuff and RD and Taylor's and all these things that, you know, Taylor has shared some um, bits from the focus group interviews and like, oh, it's really interesting to see that like landowners, their opinions don't necessarily match up with what you'd expect based on how they self-identify. Like not all farmers have negative opinions of deer. Some love fawns and like there's, there's some really interesting stuff in there. So, so yeah, I think seeing it um, kind of all come together is going to be really excited, really exciting. And uh, knowing that we don't have to go out and put 400 cameras in sub-zero temperatures in January is also, also a plus. <laughs> right. Well, it, to wrap this up, I don't want to take any more of your time. We appreciate you coming on. Where can people find, you know, all this information? I know you guys do have a Twitter that has people can kind of scroll back through. What are some places that they can go to kind of get some stuff for you guys? Yeah, so the primary ones are going to be the, the Twitter and our website. Um, so Twitter is at Research in Deer. Uh, and our website is um, ag.purdue.edu slash FNR slash Research in Deer. Um, Googling Research in Deer probably will put, um, pull it up. Um, those are our primary way of, of sharing information with the public. Um, and like I said, the website, I'm going to start um, updating it here soon with some results from this previous year. Um, so it'll be, it'll be nice and updated there. Um, and then um, the DNRD report and people can always contact me. My contact information is uh, it's on the website um, and on the Purdue directory as well. And I can, I'm always happy to answer questions about the project or um, share things as I have them to share. Excellent. And if you go to the website, the uh, ag.purdue.edu one that he just cited, if you click on the uh, studies tab and go to the publications, I'm assuming that's where as you guys begin to develop more reports, there's two peer-reviewed publications that are right now. Um, there's a brief uh, summary of how the uh, DNR adopted the RMUs. I'm sure that's probably a spot that people can check as we move forward throughout the years to come as you guys finalize some stuff. Is that a spot that we can all kind of spot check? Yeah, yeah, that'll be that'll be where we where we link to everything um, that we publish. So DNR Deer reports, um, again, those peer-reviewed publications. Um, I know I've put links into the publications, but again, depending on the journal, they might be behind a paywall. But yep. um, the first person listed in each of those um, is going to be the main author. And if you look under our our team section, it'll have um, everybody's. Um, Content information listed there, or, or it links to their um, department uh, directory page, where you can get in touch with with people for more information about specific things. Um, but again, I'm more than happy to direct anybody in the direction of um, you know more information, whether it's human dimensions things. Uh, we have multiple extension specialists on the project, so people, landowners in particular, that are really interested in habitat management, um, 
and wildlife management on their property, you know, our extension specialists are a great resource for that. Excellent. So anybody listening, as you listen through this podcast in the coming days and weeks, if you have any questions, you've heard Pat, you can reach out to them. You can reach out to me and I'll, I'll get the questions over to, to Pat and he can get it to somebody who might be able to provide an answer. But we just want to thank you, Pat. It, it, it was something that I've been meaning to do for a while. I know there's a lot of hunters out there. There's a lot of landowners that are going to just love hearing the uh, in-depth study that's going on. You know, I think sometimes just understanding and knowing all this goes a long way to understanding the reports that we get, the decisions that are made, and just the transparency that it, it helps the DNR manage our, our deer herd in Indiana. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm always happy to share information about the project and, and yeah, discuss the people that it's going to affect, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and we'll... Uh, We'll check everybody out on the next episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast.